welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by Lodi, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today's episode is exciting. It's a little bit different, but it's one that we've looked forward to for quite some time. Late in 2021, I got the opportunity to catch up with three very special individuals, all who have a world of experience in lighting design. Dan Weissman at Lamb Partners, who's a senior associate and the director of Lamb Labs. Kate St. Laurent at Canon Design, who's an associate VP and the director of their entire lighting design studio. And our very own Sarah Schoenauer, the VP of Education and Engagement at LightEye. In case you didn't know, Sarah was actually a lighting designer for 16 years in Boston at Canon Design as well. We decided to sit down with the three of them to talk about not only what the landscape of lighting design is today, but really what the entire architectural lighting community can give the lighting design community here in 2022. Aside from the fact that this group is vocally talented, they had some beatboxing, some acapella singing going on. They had some great responses to some very interesting and intriguing questions. Questions I had for them about maybe, you know, what the community could do for lighting designers or, or what the state of lighting design was, or really just even, hey, what do you wish you had that you don't have already? Enjoy this conversation. Enjoy all of their answers. A special shout out to Lamb Partners for hosting us in their facility in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If you're ever in the area, stop by. It goes without saying, they have some pretty cool lights. All right. Well, I will start. I am Kate St. Laurent. Uh, I got involved in lighting through interior design, and I was actually hired by my lighting design teacher in graduate school. And the thing that I love about lighting design is that it was a perfect meld of science, math, and art. So I got to use all the parts of my brain that I decided that, you know, which path I wanted to go down in undergrad and only picked art, but then I got to come back to it. It'll get you one way or the other. It always does. I'll go next. I fell into it. Thought I was going to be maybe an architect, but then got into architectural engineering and then went through the classes and eventually found the lighting ones and literally the bulb went off. The lamp, Dan, went off. And I kind of have been here ever since. I believe that's actually called a light bulb. (laughs) It could be, yes. How about you? The light bulb Uh, is the glass around. Correct. My name's Dan. I came to lighting through architecture. I wanted to be an architect since I was a little kid, actually. Grew up biking over to see Santiago Calatrava's art museum construction in Milwaukee, where I was growing up. But right before I graduated college, Paul Zafiriu, who's a principal at Lamb Partners, was receiving a Distinguished Alumni Award. I sat at his table, and at the end of the dinner, he asked me to come work at Lamb. He was like, we have bagels on Fridays. And I was like, sold. <laughs> All it took. It's so I came, I came here for three years. I went back to grad school, did two degrees, was considering a doctoral degree, and got waitlisted. And I was like, it's time to go back to work. And worked at an architecture firm for a while that I had mixed feelings about. And then Lamb asked if I would be interested in coming back. And I suggested that we start a, sort of an R&D lab. So that's where Lamb Labs generated, uh, started in 2014. And we've been doing cool stuff ever since. We started the whole conversation off by making sure that we laid the right foundation, you know, the framework for what it is we were going to talk about. And that is the practice of lighting design. Here's what they had to say when we asked them to explain what is lighting design. Everyone's looking at me, so I guess I'll start. (laughs) 
I must admit, I can't exactly recall what I spoke about last time we discussed over podcast microphones, but my philosophy about lighting design is very much about architectural psychology. To me, helping my clients, which are happen to generally be trained similarly to me, is really helping them sort of craft the luminous experience of the interiors and exteriors, urban spaces, whatever, and figuring out fixture locations, hardware specs, all that is sort of subsumed in service of that. Um, so some of the folks at LAM often use the, the concept of like the paintbrush and the paints are the different pieces of lighting hardware and that we're creating paintings or pa- tapestries or art installations in architectural space. I mean, I think it always comes back to the people, right? Who are the people going to be using the space? How can the lighting benefit them? You know, how can it actually help them heal or um, how can it help them just feel better, right? It's, I think you always have to come back to the people and then the additional things like the fixtures. Yes, you have to have quality products, but you have to, you know, it's more about that experience. Yeah, I think that, you know, lighting designers are the kind of deliverers of perception, at least for sighted people, although we're learning that light obviously has some impact on things that are outside of the vision spectrum as well. And lighting designers make it their business to get into the details about those paintbrushes and the canvases that you're painting on, you know, and what matters in terms of really creating an experience. And I think lighting designers gift is being able to help with that interpretation of what an experience wants to feel like from the architectural standpoint and from the the user standpoint and then creating that environment because light and emotion are so well linked and we're kind of just finding ways to explain that to people it goes without saying that in the practice of any design field today technology is something that everybody's using but that may not be the only tool that's available to them. In lighting design, there's things like mock-ups, evaluating samples, so on and so forth. But there's also maybe some new things on the horizon or things they would like to see more out of. When we talk to them a little bit about what tools they wish they had or what tools they like to use or could be improved, here's what they had to say. Well, I can jump in because Dan and I nerd about this all the time. Like, we work in a visual environment, having visual tools to help people imagine the possibilities you know, that's where I think the new frontier is. And mm-hmm. it's very exciting to see the steps that are being taken in terms of virtual reality mm-hmm. and even things like new ways of getting samples delivered and getting your hands on the materials and being in environments that we can kind of pretend are like the real environment. It's incredible where technology is going. And it has to, because the last 22 months, we haven't really been in person. But what's funny is for me personally, and for our office to a certain extent, you know, the transition to COVID was actually way easier than a lot of other firms, I think, because we had done a lot of work in developing our digital technologies and tools and facility with those in advance of that, obviously not you know anticipating that. But to me, getting on a web conference and having a real-time design session in a photometrically accurate visualization tool that's running real-time rendering is a way better way to discuss and figure out the qualities of light that you're trying to achieve in real time, as opposed to like throwing RCP drawings back and forth with a fixture schedule that nobody reads. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just impossible for most people to really understand the impact of like a line on a drawing could mean so many different things depending on what it's actually representing. So true. In the practice of lighting design, well, it is just that it's creating a design but your design doesn't do very much for you unless people know how to either build it, 
interact with it, or maybe even program it so that it does something dynamically for you. We talked to the team a little bit about what it means to document a design process. Their responses were captivating. I think it depends on where you are in your career. I think for me, I do a lot more explaining, whereas at the beginning of my career, I did a lot more documenting. But I would say lighting designers as a whole probably do more documenting these days. It really feels like it's very document heavy, especially with you know, all of the new digital tools we have, right? There's a certain amount of risk that comes along with putting things in Revit. There's a certain amount of just detail that you have to have because it's expected now of the clients. Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference between, you know, when I first started in 2005, I was picking up red lines that somebody had hand drawn and putting them in CAD. And you don't care what the suspension height is, you mark that up in the fixture schedule or you, you know, deal with the third dimension in other ways. And now we're arguably required to spend more time on documentation. Now there's a potential for a much greater benefit and payoff from that work, but there's much more labor to actually producing that content in BIM. But I think the question about documenting versus explaining the design, I think good documents can explain to a certain extent on their own, and also using the visual tools available to us now does allow us to explain things much easier than having to just provide a hand sketch that sort of conveys a conceptual idea about a detail, actually you know, building a digital model of that and studying the different ways in which that could happen and showing those options to a client can be a much more immediate sort of visceral feedback as opposed to trying to sort of discern those things from a 2D drawing. When it came to the difference of talking about designing versus documenting that, there was an interesting kind of realization that, hey, we're using the same tool to do both of those things, but should we be? Are there two separate tools? Were they developed to do one and the same? Or can certain things be more efficiently used for just one purpose versus another? Or is there a new digital tool out there that maybe somebody could develop or is developing? When we got to this part, it's where things really started to get exciting. The sparks were flying. We use AGI. We rely heavily on AGI, and it's probably not the best design tool, but we're using it in effective ways for us. You know, supporting programs like Bluebeam then allow us to quickly, you know, mark things up and, you know, add little details. But again, it would be really nice if we could do it in a 3D environment or, you know, collaborate in a more real time. I mean, where things are going in terms of modeling the collision of sort of the gaming world and the 3D reality and, you know, Enscape starting to become, you know, within reach of, of designers if you, you know, you've got the budget for it. Um, but tools like light stands that have come a long way, especially in terms of daylighting and the power that now you can plug right in, you know, there's still a long way to go, you know, in AGI has been a staple, I feel, you know, like there's a reason that that's been here for a while, but you know, the, the tools are certainly advancing. All right, let's go. Deep dive on digital tools. So AGI and Dialux and a number of these others are based on the radiosity calculation primarily, which is great for quick analysis. For a lot of lighting design, it's going to be okay, but it cannot. It simply cannot recreate all the phenomena of the physical world because it is a singular algorithm that's designed to do a specific thing. It's using Lambertian surfaces only. It's basically taking a lot of shortcuts for computational reasons. We've adopted over the last seven years now physically accurate rendering using 3D Max with a plugin called iRay, of which there's a couple other 
plugins that are doing similar things. A lot of plugins that have been developed exactly like, as Sarah said for the gaming industry or the movie industry animations that are physically based. What I, what we like about iRay is that it does provide at least illuminance false colors, doesn't do luminance, which is a constant source of consternation. But what physically based rendering does, it provides a whole suite of additional um, rendering algorithms like you know specularity or semi-specularity, anisotropic materials, subsurface scattering for all of the skin that we're doing. You know, we do a lot of skin <laughs> representation. But I think giving using a program like that in real time is really where sort of the avant-garde is. And to your point about like programs like Enscape or Lumion that are directly plugins for Revit, they don't currently do physically based rendering to the level that we're needing. But I think they're going to be within the next couple of years. And it's only a matter of time before we can actually be using Revit as the singular locus for everything. Right now, we're still exporting models when we need to do studies. But Illum tools that it, you know Lighting Analyst does can be used for basic checks mm-hmm. in, in Revit. The conversation around digitization and using computers and software to streamline products, services, and in these tools are something that we continue to kind of unpack and explore. It goes without saying anytime anyone can save you time, it's probably worth evaluating. But there was also a conversation that started to discuss at what point do these software tools stop being a, a helpful nature to the lighting designer themselves? and maybe extend past that. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or is it just buyer beware and they need to tread with caution? Kate did a great job of kind of unpacking that and providing, no pun intended, a little bit of light on this. Right, so my experience thus far is that Elum tools and Revit are just not really good to design lighting to test which fixtures you want to use, you know, you just have to pull in too much information and it bogs down the database. I have other thoughts on whether that should bog down the database, but it does. And so, you know, it just becomes, it's not a nimble tool. It's great when you need to document your final design for some AHJ who needs to see your light levels, but otherwise AGI is much more nimble. As it relates specifically to lighting design and the nature that we can model things today, that's been an evolution in of itself. There's a certain value that comes with that, but there's certain things that need to be understood in terms of using that as a design tool and not a design tell-all. We asked them to tell us a little bit more about what it means to quite literally use computers to do design that ends up being something people experience in the real world not necessarily the virtual world. I think the first question is, what is the purpose of a model? It just so happens that I put together a lecture on this exact topic for Wentworth a couple weeks ago, so I have a lot to say. So the, you know, the, the core purpose of a model is to represent something that is real in a more simplified version that we can use it to make predictions or come up with methods for anticipating what the reality is going to be. So if the goal of the model is primarily to provide illuminance levels at task plane, radiosity does a pretty good job of that with electric lighting. But that's not what we do. 
That is what an electrical engineer does to verify that they're getting their emergency calcs mm-hmm. met or that you're like meeting, you know, meet, checking the box. What we do is we provide exquisite luminous environments, right? And to that end, I strongly believe that a visual program that allows us to operate on the lighting in real time is the only path forward for lighting design in digital realm. And to that end, People coming into the field need to have a basic understanding of what it means to produce a rendering, at least the basics of how those rendering algorithms work so that you understand what's bullshit and what's not. And sort of a facility in moving between, you know, a hand sketch and a fully rendered photometrically accurate visualization that can convey to a client not what they want it to be, but what it actually is. One of the big things we find is our clients will sell to their client an image of what they want the thing to look like that is totally not realistic. (laughs) Studio lights. (laughs) And then we come back and we render it for real. And then they're pissed off that the lighting solution didn't work how they intended. And it's like, well, this is how we thought it was going to be. And it is a spitting image of what what it looks like in reality. It's definitely an issue. And trying to get in the sequence at the right time yeah. to, to get in front of those and go, are you noticing that there aren't any shadows? Are you noticing that the light's coming from magical location? Like, this is not real. You know, because there can be these misconceptions yeah. about, you know, how we can achieve that. And I think you can kind of feel the palpable frustration in the room because without putting words in your mouth, I mean, all of us have been there from visual to where AGI is now. And we're now living in a world where we're just scratching the surface of how close we are to being able to create real VR environments and really replicate things. But I don't even think VR is necessarily the end goal because frankly, I don't like sitting in front of you know an enclosure like a, a virtual reality headset. Sam actually sent me his virtual reality headset and it was mind-bogglingly cool, but after about a half an hour, I had a splitting headache. Well, and maybe VR is, is just one example, but getting to a place where we can accurately depict environments where we're not actually sitting there. But we can't. That's the thing. Well, that's what it's I'm saying. Not it's not enough it's of there, but we can't quite do it. it exactly. Not everybody's doing it. It's not the standard. It's not demanded. It's certainly not included in the fee. Not right now. So that's a, that's a value add. However, let me add that we just used Twin Motion the other day, and it probably saved us. 40 hours that it would have taken to replicate it. Exactly. See, that's, and I mean, having those case studies and those, like, here's the proof in the pudding, I think yep. that's going to be what helps tip the iceberg and say, these are the tools we need. we got to get mm-hmm. involved. Right. Being facile in these programs is the way forward because I will tell you, it's way cheaper for me to get on a web conference for an hour instead of going to another city to have an in-person meeting for four hours to talk about the lighting design when I could just, like, model some stuff. We get on a call and it's right there. And then we just document what we've seen. The conversation around software, around these design platforms, around these digital tools really is something that we probably could have talked about for days. It's the main thing that everybody uses in the design industry today. So I was curious to get a little bit more information from them. How do they use this? Why do they use this? Do they need to use this? Do they see anybody that's not in this space, that's not in our industry right now, that might be looking to come into it or have they had the opportunity to evaluate it. Spoiler alert, there's definitely a large video game industry out there and they've got their sights set on the architectural industry. Lighting can be challenging, but their responses are something that encouraged me and I hope all of you to think about, well, here's what might happen next. I mean, we do a lot of our own internal training because there isn't a lot of technical support for some of this stuff. I mean, the software companies will provide some support, but certainly within the lighting industry, there's not a lot. We'll get onto the IES file uh, soapbox in a minute, but a lot more companies are providing 
Revit families for their fixtures. We don't use them. Nope. <laughs> we make all our own families internally because those families don't really provide us much help. And frankly, the only time you really want a, a custom family is if you like selecting some fancy decorative fixture that's going to be very visible in the space that the architect really wants to have in the model for whatever reason. Yep. But by and large, you don't need to have those. Where it would be helpful is to have more 3DS models. And a couple companies do that. Um, we can certainly bring in from uh, Revit families, import those in, but more digital geometry of the fixtures in ways that sort of can move around and do anything that the fixture can in reality can be could be helpful. When you look at the digital landscape of lighting design software tools, they all rely on one universal set of data, and that is the IES file. An IES file is a photometric file, as most people know, but how is that photometric file created probes some questions. There's near-field and far-field photometry, and they sound exactly like what they are, measuring light close by or measuring light from far away. Far-field photometry is the number one way that IES files are created today. It's the way luminaires are tested. Furthermore, uh, with the evolution of LEDs in certain codes and standards, there's been different requirements around how output is tested, how life is rated, so on and so forth. The world of testing, the world of creating and collecting and analyzing data, and also having a precise output on an LED has created some confusion, but also some opportunity in terms of getting more accurate data. We talked to the team a little bit about what does it mean to use an IES file today? Are they current? Is this the best way to not only develop but share information? And um, what's the general availability of IES files like? And also, how accurate are they? When we dove into this, let's just say there's always room for improvement, but this seems like an area that manufacturers can continue to do a better job of supporting the lighting design community in. Run into that one, Dan. Come on. I mean, does that, if anybody no, else wants yeah, to jump in, you're on the soapbox. Okay. All right, so first of all, <laughs> IES has actually had a technical memorandum out for a while now about the use of XML files instead of the IES file type, which can capture a lot more data about the fixture. It, can, it could potentially capture both near-field and far-field photometry, spectral power distribution data that could be used for circadian lighting analysis. It could also include much more information about materiality. One of the really interesting things about using physically accurate rendering is I could theoretically build a fully operational light fixture in 3D Max with an actual LED emitter and all the correctly specified materials of the product, including lensing or whatever, and theoretically get a pretty accurate representation of the photometry of the fixture by actually modeling the whole fixture in the, in the software. And that not, may not be the path forward, but the fact that that is an option means that we, there's, some, there's definitely a better way than the current IES file data. Then the, the fact that sometimes fixtures are physically built and then tested in a Ghanio photometer, and other times they're provide, the photometric data is provided through Photopia or another mm -hmm. program, which leaves a lot of disparity between you know, accuracy and the fact that a fixture's IES data may look great in a model, but then you see the fixture in reality and it's glary as hell, or there's some material quality that's just impossible to represent digitally. Color over angle, yeah. The truth of the matter is that we get back to the question of modeling and what is the limit of the model and when do you have to jump from digital space back into reality. I was going to say, mock-ups. There's, there, there's, there's, no, there's no 
substitute Substitution. for experiencing light in reality. Exactly. Absolutely. So understanding both how to take advantage of you know these digital technologies as much as possible, but also knowing their limits. Knowing where to jump off yeah. and go back to saying, you know what, just send me the sample and let's go mock it up. When it comes to evaluating light fixtures or lights in a space, uh, output is one thing, but the comfort of it is another thing, which can often be measured by something we all refer to as, ah, that's too bright. No, just kidding. It's glare. It's uh, how comfortable, how, you know, how much is this shining my face versus shining on what I needed to. And when it comes to modeling that, well, that can somewhat be objective. So we had a little bit of a conversation around not only what glare is, but can we and how should we model that? So glare is a really interesting one because both it's being attacked both from the electric lighting standpoint and from the day lighting standpoint mm -hmm. right now. And what's funny is that there's some metrics that could be used by both parties that aren't really being discussed as well as they could be. Like daylighting analysis is using the DGP analysis, daylight glare probability, which takes into account a whole bunch of things. My favorite is the Guth position index, <laughs> which shows how much of the light is in your field of view. Some very similar things are happening in UGR and the discussion about electric light sources. But at the end of the day, it's another one of those ones where you can predict glare potential, but you can you will never predict actual glare because we move around in 3D space and our relationship to the luminous environment is constantly changing. Not and to mention it's subjective per person. Yes, absolutely. You know, and somebody that is is more, you know, sort of used to it or accommodating to it is gonna have a different sense than somebody's, you know, whose face is shaped differently. Or you design a whole project raised around the idea of minimizing glare and then the architect changes the material finish of something during CA and all of a sudden what wouldn't have been a glary situation is now a very glary situation, having nothing to do with the electric lightings. Absolutely. We got to somewhat of a midpoint in our conversation. And after talking about what lighting design is, how people are interacting with it today, what designers are using, and some things that can be improved, I point blank just asked them, so what can the community do to support you? What do you guys want? What could be done differently? What could be improved upon? What's not out there that you need? And this is where all the fun began. Well, I think we have a lot to already thank committees for. You know, I know that when we had uh, the first talk about TM30 when the IES held them here, gosh, that probably was like five or six years ago, and Tony Esposito came and chatted about it. I remember the resounding conversation was, okay, but how do I specify it? How, how can we put it on a luminaire schedule and make it as easy as picking a number close to 100? And they've done that with Annex E. I mean, there are tools now in the Lighting Designers Toolkit that allow that ease of specification and making so much of the data and the metrics and all these things that really matter accessible and, and defendable to an architect or to an interior designer or to a client when it comes down to cost and why you may have chosen something. So, and yet we're still just talking about 90 CRI. Well, but, uh, but we're moving past you know, CRI and, and TM30 obviously talks about the difference between, you know, a, a one dimensional versus a three or four dimensional analysis of color, which again could be in incorporated into, you know, an XML file much more feasibly than 100%. the IES. So anyway, th these things are happening, but it's about, you know, getting that message out more quickly and how do we then amplify it and how do we get not just the lighting community who's talking about this to each other you know how do we get that into the hands of the architects and the interior designers who also care about it and have maybe a closer link to a decision maker like the client isn't that what we're doing right now no. are we doing that i 
I think we are. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think the conversations are huge and the conversations in maybe bite-sized chunks, but, you know, when people can listen to them on their own time, you know, like that sort of ability to, to hear actual conversation, but in your own time, that's just huge. I love podcasts. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.